welcome to the Kibi Community, a sonic space for empathy and kindfulness. I'm Ruby Illing, and this episode is something slightly different to what you'd normally hear on this podcast. You'll be hearing from Nick, one of our partners, and his story of recovery. My name is Nick. When I was 30 years old, 17 years ago, I got very sick with encephalitis and found myself in a coma, which nearly took my life. No recovery journey is as linear as we imagine it to be. For Nick, it was a rocky road full of twists and turns and dead ends. The only way he got through was by building a toolkit for getting by and changing his perspective when the old ones were blocking his path. So here's Nick's story of recovery and how he built his toolkit for life. A warning, there is mention of suicide in this story. So if this is something that you're not comfortable with hearing, you can stop listening now, or I've left timestamps in the description for when it is mentioned. It started when I was 30 years old and living with friends in London. And it was just a normal summer's evening and um, I was having a barbecue with friends uh, and all of a sudden I, you know, for want of a better term, keeled over and started having fits and seizures. You know, I fell into the barbecue, which was a concern for my friends. And, um, you know, there they're seeing their, their friend lying on the floor having fits and seizures. And this has never happened before. And I'm 30 years old. So they call an ambulance. The ambulance t- turns up puts me on oxygen, takes me to hospital and sends me home the same night. Um, and the following morning, th- the same thing happened again. And uh, this is on my way to work. So this time I went back into hospital and this was the start of my six week coma that they put me into. They induced me into a coma. I got an infection of the brain called encephalitis. Uh, and specifically, there's different parts of your brain called you know, the, the cerebral cortex, which is where all of the creativity of humans comes out of. But in this case, this is what we call the monkey brain, which is the, the limbic system, which we, we still use, but not to such a great extent. And this is the part of the brain that had got infected. And I think the doctors explained it to me months later, what was actually happening was something had infected my brain. They never exactly diagnosed what it was, but the closest diagnosis they came to was something like Lyme's disease, which is born in ticks, which reside in the English countryside. Not too common, so not something to be worried about, but I might have just been unlucky that summer or very, very unlucky. Something had bitten me, perhaps. It might have been barefoot at a festival for three days, which I, which I, which, which I don't remember doing either, but it, it might've been something like that, but they certainly said it was viral and um, they were trying to diagnose what it was. They said it wasn't Lyme's disease, but there were variants of it. It's a bit like we have COVID and they go, well, there's a new variant, a new strain of it out. It might've been something in that ballpark, but they never came out with a proper diagnosis. I mean, it was of such interest to the medical community. They sent a, a bunch of students down from Oxford University to do their thesis on what it might be. 
sure, sure thing. Um, come and study me and put probes in me, not too far. But, you know, you're, you're welcome to try and learn from me. But they came away and go, no, we can't work out what it is. We can work out what it's not, but we can't work out what it is. But in terms of symptoms, you've got encephalitis for sure. And that's just a broad term for infection of the brain. And the brain only has to expand by one or two percent. It's a very delicate you know, organ in the body. And if it's expanding by that much, and that trauma, that almost pressure on the brain is what starts sending electrical signals out to every muscle in your body, which then is a seizure. And that was what people was people were seeing. And how that can be calmed down is reduce the swelling on the brain. But to, to reduce the swelling, you're trying to work out what it is. They spent about a week probing and uh, having a go at what it could, you know, trying to diagnose. Uh, and they watched me go downhill. I was having seizures about every 20 minutes, which, um, you know, by the end of that week, I found myself in intensive care. And um, I was in there, I think I was in there maybe um, a week, something like this. And I, and I, this is where things get almost dreamlike. And I'll use that word dreamlike or I say spiritual-like. And I don't mean anything religious in the sense of um, sp spirit. I mean, I mean almost like out of body. I'm looking at myself. I could feel the love of people caring for me but I couldn't work out where I was and what was going on. People turned up, I just sort of saying hello, and my mum was talking about this this morning. She said, we turned up, but I don't think you knew who we were. And um, I didn't, you know, they turn up and, and, and they would say, hi, you know, and, uh, and who were your parents? And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> uh, and they're like, we've been here every day. But um, I, I couldn't work that bit out. So it was pretty fuzzy during those sort of six weeks in and out of um, not consciousness, but, you know, all, almost dream, dream state in and out. Fast forwarding to sort of what over happened over those next six weeks is they, they put a lot of steroids into me, which they knew would have their adverse reaction, but also were probably my only chance of living. One and one of the, the side effects of that is, um, they cause you to hallucinate. So I had on one day, I had my music day where everything was vibrating and I could feel music coming through the walls, which I thought, which I thought was fascinating. Another day, everything was made out of plastic. So, you know, I was having these experiences from hospital beds and I didn't know I was in hospital at this point. Well, one, one, one moment, I'm looking down on myself. So this is in the coma. I'm looking down on myself in, in, in the bed in the hospital. I didn't know it was in the hospital in the bed. And I'm looking down at what probably was then just a piece of meat, really. And my my being, my my spirit had, had left that that body and it was it was actually floating above it. I didn't have arm I I didn't really have what you would call sort of tangible arms and legs. So that I didn't really have a, a body sense anymore, but I had a, a sense of a spirit. Uh, and there was two options. Black, black and white. One of them was this light. And there was a rope going towards this light. It was a long mile away. And there was the other option, which was a, 
a black sofa with what was a voice saying, come and lie down over here and rest for a while. And I had enough awareness to think, I'm going towards the light. I'm not going to go and lie down on that sofa. And then I started this journey, hand over hand, I guess you could say, towards this light. There was no breaks. There was no stop for food. I wasn't hungry. There was no stop for rest. I wasn't tired. It was just hand over hand, step by step to what seemed like something in the very, very distance, a bit like a train tunnel. And you see a very long tunnel and a light at the end of it. And I, I look back at that moment now, and that was very clearly, I think, a moment of life and death of do I go towards the light or do I give up uh, and, you know, give up the fight and just go and die. And I knew that was that. So I, I chose the light and this, this journey, it, it seemed to take the period of time in my brain, not that I had any sort of watch on or anything, I didn't have any arms really, but I was able to drag myself along the rope. And uh, I was probably on this rope for about a week, dra dragging myself along. When I got to the end, I put my head through into the light. It was this matrix moment of suddenly everything became clear. The light suddenly opened up. And I sat upright in my hospital bed going, you know, where am I? I looked at the name badge. I thought, who's Nick Griffith? Oh, that's you. Mm, I don't remember that. And I, my friends would turn up. I wouldn't recognize them. My parents would turn up. I wouldn't recognize them. A friend of mine very kindly helped organize a rota of friends who wanted to come and visit because you're allowed six visitors a day. And there was a queue of people. And they, the hospital wouldn't let them all in. So he arranged a rotor. So I had six visitors a day. I didn't recognize them. There's a few pictures of me looking probably a bit, bit vacant. And then in there, in their kind of overalls. And um, I, I remember the I got moved from the kind of my own ward into a, a sort of a, a general, more of a general ward with four people in it. Uh, and um, it was it was the summertime because I clearly remember my dad paying for the TV that was a, like a watch and it was Wimbledon and the World Cup happening at the same time. And I get really confused as to why they're trying to kick the ball. But it was I was watching the tennis. <laughs> I'd get really confused between tennis and football. <laughs> right? uh, so my brain was clearly frazzled from the experience and was come, coming back to it all. Some of the exercises I was given was like count to 10. And I struggled with that. Uh, but I knew, num I knew numbers. It's almost like a deck of cards have been shuffled and thrown on the table and is now disor disordered. So I didn't have amnesia, although I didn't rem remember a lot of things. I just couldn't remember what order everything went in. There was a real, a real sort of challenge in that. And, and I remember thinking, mm, you know what? This seems like a place to wait to die and I don't want to be here I've got to get out of here and I've got to, to do work this at all everything I can do to fight you you don't know how strong you are until you're really thrown a curveball and you're really tested people think they've been tested when um you know there's a, a tough assignment at work or and I'm sure parenting that's a long term that's a huge huge test but this this was life and death uh, and, and you don't really know what you're capable of but uh, 
I decided that I wasn't going to lie there and go through some sort of slow recovery for months and months and months. And maybe a lot of people, to give some context, a lot, it's quite common with encephalitis to come out in a wheelchair. It's also quite common to lose some of your senses. So you read up a lot of people, they'd be like, oh, I'm blind, I'm deaf. Uh, and that was, that, that was not going to happen to me. So um, the, the doctor said to me, I'll do you a deal. I'll let you go home and complete your recovery at home. Once you can remember my name and tell me how to make a cup of tea. <laughs> right? It sounds so simple. <laughs> but it took, about a, it took about a week to master. Uh, I confess I cheated. What I did was maybe it was creativity or ingenuity. I asked the nurses for a piece of paper and a pencil and I asked them to write down how to make a cup of tea and his name. And I spent all night revising it until he'd come in in the morning with his other doctors on his rounds and he'd go, what's my name? I'd go, it's this. And they'd go, oh, you feel a bit better today. I'm like, I've been up all night revising. Um, how do I make a cup of tea? And I was like, starting that with like, oh, you, you pull the tree out the ground and then you put the sugar in. And he's like, no, nah, you're not ready to go home yet. <laughs> oh, I don't know where I got the tree out the ground from and the cup of tea process at all. I laugh at it now, but it was, it was, it was going to take time to maybe relearn or, or reorder or, or bring back to some sort of normality after going through a major trauma. And also I was on a lot of medication. So they wanted to tone that down uh, before I was going back safe to work or something like that. One morning um, I managed to blag <laughs> the doctor into thinking that I was okay to go home uh, by telling him his name and, and giving him the, uh, the proper order on how to make a cup of tea. Uh, even though I think I was reading it from a piece of paper hidden under the, the mattress to <laughs> the duvet. <laughs> I was like trying to read it out to him. It was getting better. Whether I should have been in hospital another month or two, I don't, I don't know. I'd lost 25% of my body weight. So th things were weakened. But um, I thought it was going to be more comfortable to be at home with family. And I didn't need medical attention. They were just supervising me. And there was a lot of things that were like, experiencing for the first time again. Like, you know, it's almost like your senses hadn't been used in that way. You know, I remember my first shower. And that was weird. I stood there and then I turned it on. And I thought, this is a weird sensation. Like, imagine your first ever shower. It felt like that. I've got a very vivid memory of, sort of saying to the doctor when he let me go after my shower. Okay. Uh, and sort of saying, um, thanks for my clothes back. Uh, is there a, now what? And he goes, is there a book or a manual of what to do next? And he goes, no. No, in fact, you're, in fact, I'm surprised to see you walking out of here. Um, it, and I, I, would, I, I tried a different question. I went, oh, I know. What happened to the people that had the illness before me? What happened to them? He goes, they all died. No, nobody, nobody's ever walked out of hospital with what you had. And I thought this, this was strange. And then I, and I remember having an emotional moment because I remember... The, the care and the love and intensive care. It's a bit like you've got 10 people looking after your welfare in, in, in all, all at the same time. So I went and bought this box of chocolates and I was very keen to go back and make this gesture to the intensive, you know, intensive care team. And I mean, it's, it's emotional thinking about it, but they all started crying. <laughs> and they're like, you know, 
you're the reason why we do what we do. Um, you know, to see you come back in here, we, we were not expecting that. So thank you to the NHS. It saved my life. And, and I think that in that environment, it's probably second to none. You know, they, it really was a, an A1 team. That, that's why they do what they do. And, and um, I felt that love. I could really feel that. And that definitely helped lift me up to, to continue to think, okay, I'm, I'm fighting for this. If they can fight for me, I can definitely fight for me. And that was the hospital experience. I came home um, and I think I was at home for another few months and um, I was working in the city in a bank when this incident happened, doing spreadsheets uh, as a contractor. I remember the kind of the point came after what period of time, it might've been sort of five or six months, but uh, the point came, I thought, right, going back to work. And I remember where the office was and I got out what I thought was the white floor and I sat in, I remember where my chair was, but it turns out I got out at the wrong floor and, and then proceeded to have a sort of semi-argument with somebody who said I was in their chair. Uh, and, and, and then I realised when I went to the bathroom, I thought, this is a bit different. Oh, I think I'm on the wrong floor. So I kind of crept out and went up the stairs one floor and then didn't say goodbye, just went up one floor. And then, and, and then this seemed a bit more normal. And I recognized my friend uh, and some of the other faces and my colleagues. I couldn't, I couldn't remember what my job was. <laughs> this is probably where I went into solution mode or creative mode. Uh, a combination of, I couldn't sit down and just chew my colleague's ear off for three hours and go, what did I do? And what did I do then? Uh, I, you know, he had bigger things to do and he wasn't there to kind of retrain me or bring me up to speed and everything. In fact, if I was back at work, they were kind of assuming that I was able to do the job. So I was trying to do it quietly. So the best way I did this was I looked at the emails I was sending and the replies I was getting. And I had this kind of like map in the middle of what was being sent and what was being received. And then I built a picture of what my job was from the emails that were being sent and received before I went into hospital. I mapped out what my job was by filling in the blank and then asking my colleagues maybe a question an hour or over lunch or at the water cooler and go, oh yes, this, you know, that bit of the project. <laughs> uh, I, I had a very good uni friend who had held the position for me, that, thanks to Prissy, that's her name. So she'd, she kind of looked after that spot and defended my quarter and been to hospital to see me. So yeah, they knew to what extent, I don't know, but they certainly knew I'd been sick. So, yeah, I think it was it was a slow rebuild of, you know, go, go, coming home and going back to work. That's a, that's probably one of the, the strongest memories I've got of, of rebuilding my life from you know, not knowing how to count to 10, but knowing numbers to then three months later, going back to working in a bank with spreadsheets. <laughs> and most people don't like spreadsheets anyway, right? This was uh, 17, 17 years ago, this event. The, the legacy of that is that I have um, epileptic seizures in my sleep. They happen about once a month. So they've, ha they've happened more or less every month on average for the last 17 years. Uh, and um, I went back to the outpatient ward in the, the hospital I was at, which is in Hampstead. After, after a good few years of medication levels and just sort of putting me on medication, they were like, 
I remember there's so much paperwork on my file that the doctor had to push it to one side and look around it at me because he couldn't see me. There were so many notes on my case. And he and he just sort of said, um, um, Nick, I think, you know, we, we're probably at a stage now where I'd say to you, you're lucky to be alive, but we're not going to be able to cure this. It's a case of containing it. So, so yeah, yeah, that that was um, what I've now live with so some of the some of the consequences are um apart from that it's it sort of it shakes shakes the brain up when it happens in fact it happened quite recently just to kind of almost remind me you know of like how kind of destabilizing it is but then we sort of uh, dig into the toolkit you've developed in a way to deal with it which was never there before and how can i say now wholeheartedly it was actually you know, one of the one of the best things that's ever happened. I know, which which may sound strange. I couldn't have said that with sincerity for a decade. <laughs> I re- I really couldn't. Uh, and I've said it now, and I really mean it. it. It's developed me as a person. Um, and I think I've written a kind of list of words here, but I think one of the ones that really, really stands out is is perspective. And the world is full of examples of those that have sometimes faced the greatest adversity and challenge are sometimes the people that bounce back the strongest because they've tapped into something that most people don't even know is in them. It's it's dormant until they need it. Most people don't need it in the Western world day to day to live. They, you know, their fight for survival is, is the supermarket open. It's not a, a big issue. And, and I think most people would look at something, you know, it's, it's impo- that's impossible. No, it just seems impossible until you've someone's done it, whether it's the first person to create a light bulb, Edison, or whether it's the first person to go and stand on the moon. Um, it just seems impossible, but, but, but actually it's not impossible. And as soon as often the, the watershed's been broken and it's happened, a lot of other people then do it as well. There's so many you know, kind of sound bites, like each journey starts with the first step and that kind of thing. But it, but it really is so true, however whether you're in a physical state or in a, a spiritual state like I was there uh, and if I'd realized how long if I'd realized it's going to take a week I probably would have said I'll take the sofa but but no I wasn't having that at all my fear of the impossible is less if, if that makes sense I don't, I don't look at every single thing and think oh that's just completely possible what you're talking about and put down to someone else's fears I think my my own fears are are lesser because I think well um, I don't think it will be as impossible as you think or the mountain will be as tough and even if it is tough well, you can doesn't mean you won't make it so I, I didn't have as much fear of death so I've written them down here in no particular order here it's it's gratitude. It, and, and there's a linkage to perspective here, but but I'm grateful for what I do have. Uh, I could have not come out of that hospital at 30 years old. I've been given a 17-year bonus. You know, if we're if the the economy is, um, you know, perhaps it has its ups and its downs, or, or our health it has its ups and its downs, and you know, even our happiness houses ups and its downs so, you know there's a there's a lot to be grateful for that we, we take for granted and we forget i'm able to sort of somehow just 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 
take a little bit of a step back and by the time I've gone through the list of what I'm grateful for, I've forgotten what I was upset about. <laughs> you know, it, 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 does, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's forgotten. It's like, oh, hang on a second. You know what? I'm in a comfortable home. I've got food. I mean, it, it could quite happen that my body uh, isn't able to re rebuild itself after a seizure. Uh, and my most recent one was so three days ago. You know, and one of the other things that comes up here is increased awareness. And what I mean by that is I'd have a seizure. I, I normally might hurt myself in some way. In fact, once I threw myself down the stairs, <laughs> I twisted my knee. I gave myself concussion. I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I, try, I was trying to order a pizza at two in the morning. I mean, you know, it, it was almost, it's almost funny apart from the injury part. So now I've kind of like compensated for that by having a really large bed. And, you know, if I get up in the middle of the night after having a seizure, my girlfriend's like, where are you going? She, you know, she hopes she won't let me out the room. <laughs> but, but, but what happens to me, like everyone who's caring for someone has an impact on your, the people around you. And I didn't really appreciate that. I didn't have a proper awareness of how it would impact others and how they want to care for you. So I guess in my example, I might be uh, masculine of alpha about it and go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Just just, just leave me alone. I'm, I'll be all right. I don't need help. Um, actually, the people around you, the way they're dealing with the trauma is they want to help. And then there's this guy saying, no, I don't want your help. Stop bothering me. Just, I'm fine. Um, and I had to sort of recognize that and increased awareness of the impact it has on other people uh, and let them help you because they're going through trauma as well. And I became better at this rather than having a sort of semi argument afterwards, which is resisting help because I didn't need it, almost accepting the help. Um, and then just trying to be helpful and loving and caring. Um, and, and then they feel better. Uh, and 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 then you both feel better. But what I think is, there's a lot of people in the caring in the community. It's like all we have to do is show a bit of gratitude, be aware of how they might be feeling about it, and it can make the the relationship much more symbiotic and loving both ways, two ways. Another one um, is resilience to, to I don't say traumatic events, but uh, almost like a mental a mental resilience. When I'm having these events once a month for 17 years. Um, there, is a there is a muscle, uh, and not a, a physical muscle, but uh, a mental muscle that builds up a, a resilience to the impact it can have. Okay, you're not having a seizure, but there's uh, something else that's happening that is traumatic out there. A, a part of my mindset and personality has become um, a, d a degree calmer. Like people are, would be aware of, you know, when they come out of a, car crash you know something like that they're really like it's, they're taking a long time to kind of calm down and that's because they're they're pumped full of adrenaline the body's gone into a sort of save yourself mode and if you recognize recognize that then you're able to sort of temper it and i think control it is probably over optimistic but certainly temper it and be, and be aware of it and actually if you were trying to make a very 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 important decision you would say 
Let's not make it right now in the heat. They say in the heat of the moment. It's, it's a bit like, uh, do we go this way? Take the high road or the low road? One could kill us. One's going to, you know, one we're going to live. Uh, we've got to make this decision 60 seconds after a car crash when we're all a bit like starry eyed. You'd be like, we need to gather our breath here. Seriously, this is a very, very, very important decision where we will live or die. And let's just think about this when I say as calmly as we can. Um, so you're almost trying to sort of stop anything rash happening, being being aware of that. So it's, it's this this tool, these toolkit kind of works together a little bit. Uh, and I think the other part I was, you know, the ones I mentioned before, which is keeping a, a perspective of um, how far you've come. You know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't know my name at thirty, right? I, I did a mechanic. I did a mechanic, mechanical engineering degree in London, and I, and I couldn't remember any of that. So to have kind of rebuilt that in my memory, that's a long way uh, come. So, you know, keeping a perspective on, on events that happen. Um, and, I, and I think the other, the other bit that I kind of practiced and learned, and this is almost like, I don't know where the idea of learning my job by looking at my emails or using the the nurses to revise how to make a cup of tea it, it's creativity you know um you know the mind is when it's given a challenge it, it can be incredibly creative people might think they don't think of themselves as a creative i don't i couldn't draw um or couldn't paint a piece of art and look back and sit back with pride i think let's throw that in the bin please <laughs> okay <laughs> But but if it's an engineering problem, fine. You know, that, I guess that's part. Maybe that's my brain. But um, you know, I, I think I think different people's brains will work in different ways. But there's, I think there's creativity in in our own ways in different different ways. So you know, just because you, the front door is not working, doesn't mean you're not going through the door. You you just got to find the side door. If that if that makes sense. I come back to what happened sort of 17 years ago. And I, and I think to myself, the, these are all things that have developed in my mind since, since that moment as well. So that's why I call it one of the best things that ever happened to me. But so I think before that, I would have been more on the angry and resentful and frustrated side of that. It, it created, a, I would say, a, not like a confusion but um, I did a degree, I went for a job, I went for a job, I went, did this, I did this, I did this. And then I was lying in my bed at 30 when a lot of people would be perhaps well into their job or career or maybe thinking about saving for a house or, or something. And I lay in my bed at home and my dad said to me, so what next? I went, I've got no idea, no idea. And, and, and in, and in some ways, I look back up between 30 and 40, uh, and there was a degree of a fog in that. Um, I, I was almost just doing marketing for businesses, but not, pick, you know, filling events, but not getting paid a lot for it. And if the event folded, I wouldn't necessarily get paid. And I got myself into a tax arrears. Uh, and, and my mental health, you know, I was, you know, borrowing money and um, I had everyone chasing me for money. 
and it, and it went into a very dark place actually and i and i wrote my i wrote i wrote a, okay we're going into a darker place here just just to just to, just to warn you here I mean, not from I, I could talk i could talk about it now but i actually was living in canada away from family i'd run away from my debts and my problems and uh this was four or five years ago and um and whether this there was a sort of legacy of um not having fixed things after my uh, sickness i think i probably not fixed some of my finances i didn't give myself a clear strategy uh, over 10 years things deteriorated and uh I got myself in such a dark place and I couldn't go back to my family for more, for more money. I started Googling how to end my life. I, actually, what scared me was how matter of fact I was about it. I was like, okay, well, this that's, that's, that's easy. And, that, and yeah, I wouldn't do that. If the timeline of sickness was 30, this was 40. There was a, a point around there, was certainly with mental health. I thought, you know, it's a sort of a, a taboo and it's, it's, a, it's a topic that people don't talk about or not comfortable talking about. And, uh, and I, I think maybe I've become desensitized to, okay, yes, you know, you were talking about how do I feel? You know, almost almost you'll you're, you're know your, your life. And if you're, do you live each day, uh, make the most out of it all, but do you fear death? And I'm like, no, I don't fear death. Well, that actually made me, dropped the barriers to me doing ain't doing the you know the worst most people would have a lot bigger fear of death than than i might do i'm like you know when it's my time it's my time even if it's like i'm ending it that's that was my time and, and i looked at it a bit too matter of fact i think rather than seeing it for all of the impact because i was living in canada eight hour flight away away from family and I probably didn't, wouldn't have had anybody close to me to sort of speak to and, you know, say, whoa, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Uh, and the next week, I met a girl uh, through uh, sort of social networking, um, whatever, whatever site it was. It might have been Facebook. It might have been something else. But uh, the, sh- the short story is I got to know her, went out with her for a month. It was a really exciting change in my life. And then she went quiet on me, which was sad and, you know, a bit upsetting, really. But it was new. And um, I found out two weeks later she'd killed herself. Uh, and it actually jolted me. So uh, I found out about it through friends. And uh, and then I said something. I decided to do it on Facebook. Right. <laughs> No, nobody knew apart from my parents and my sister. Then they didn't know to the day I was going to post it. I'd written this post and I had, I was, I was hovering over the post button for about a month. Uh, and then I wrote it and then I posted it and it generated a, a big reaction. And um, I'd have to go back and read what I wrote now. <laughs> but on the day I, on the day I posted, it was almost announced that this is, you know, I was thinking of, killing myself here and um and it was it was like it was so matter of said being so matter of fact about it with myself that you know I scared myself into thinking you might do this but uh actually um now after this event now I'm I realize that I've got myself into a hole but you know just just because people might have thought oh it's happy go lucky nick that would never happen that's not true 
And I wonder how many other people are harboring dark thoughts that are just keeping it to themselves. And, um, you know, don't, I don't expect you to announce it on Facebook, but you're not alone to so talk to a friend because um, I'm doing it in a public way to try and encourage anyone who's having any dark thoughts to go and find somebody to go and talk to versus holding it to themselves. What happened with this girl was a wake up call for me. And, uh, and then you know, I, I came home. And anyway, whatever I said inspired her family. And I went and spoke. They, they didn't know me, but I went and spoke at her memorial uh, about a month later. But it was, it, was a, it was a dark point. So uh, I feel like um, part of me is having to re rebuild my life from halfway through. Yeah, and that's frustrating. Uh, and there are moments when I'm frustrated and angry and resent that. And it's less why me. It's more like, wow, I've got less time to build a mountain. Uh, and, and that is, well, at times I found that depressing, which is why I went for um, some life coaching, actually, uh, as part of the journey. I thought this, this was last year. So it took me 16 years to sign up for it. Don't, be, don't ever be ashamed of saying, oh, you know what? Uh, it, it, I've, I've been dealt my hand. It is what it is. And, you know, there's no changing that. No, it just helps shift my perspective on some of the aspects of that and embracing some of the bits that I'd learned out of it, which is why I'm really wholeheartedly able to say it's, it's something, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And um, here I am now, I'm moving out in February after five years. So this is, this is a, an exciting new chapter coming up. I'm glad I was here. I was meant to be here. Me came for my mum with my dad this year with her cancer. I'm glad I wasn't, doing what I was doing in my 20s which is trying to fit in about five countries a month but but um if I'd been doing that I might have missed some of the, their last years um and been able to help and give back so in going through this process I'm gonna have to listen I'm gonna have to listen to this myself and remind myself to listen to this because you've, you've given me a platform to research a lot of the things that's I take for granted. We just do. I just, I'm going to contradict myself. You just think, oh, well, I'm here. No, you forget what you've, what you've been through. So um, any opportunity to tell the story and someone to give me a little soapbox moment, I'm very grateful for. And this is a very special platform. So I'm inc incredibly grateful for that. And, um, you know, even, even one person listening to this that has an inspiration out of it, you know. Um, it was it was worth me taking the rope towards the light because you just you just don't know who you can meet meet and inspire by talking to them. And this is another platform. So anything in addition to that, it it just reinforces it wasn't my time. It's as simple as that. Oh Nick, <laughs> that that was beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. If you, if, you, if you recorded that, you could put that in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I was thinking this is perfect. <laughs> I'm actually getting quite emotional now. <laughs> yeah, same. I've got tears in my eyes. <laughs> Me too. It just triggered it. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, you know, it's good. When you're not thinking about it, sometimes they're the best words that came out, but it is true. No, it, it really is.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gibby Community. And thank you again to Nick for sharing your story. You can follow us on social media. We are Gibby HQ on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Links are in the description 